This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Bruce Tift. Bruce has been in private practice as a psychotherapist since 1979 and has been a practitioner of Vajrayana Buddhism for more than three decades, as well as teaching at Naropa University for 25 years. His new release with Sounds True is called Already Free, Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Bruce and I spoke about embodied immediacy and how disembodiment is a requirement of neurosis. We also talked about neurotic organization and how neurosis is always a substitute for legitimate suffering. Bruce also shared with us his view that much of our growth comes from acting in ways that are actually counter-instinctual and what it might mean to practice psychotherapy with the view that we are already free, that there's actually no problem that we need to solve. Here's my very intriguing and rich conversation with Bruce Tift. In your work, Bruce, you talk about a dialogue between what you call the developmental approach, the approach of Western psychotherapy, and what you term the fruitional approach, the approach of Buddhism that already, right now, there's nothing that needs to be done or accomplished. There's a kind of inherent perfection in the moment. And now you say something very interesting about this dialogue between the developmental and fruitional approach, that there's no, quote-unquote, resolution, no resolution between these two different approaches. And I have to say, I wasn't very satisfied by that. What do you mean there's no resolution? There are plenty of theorists and other lecturers who are talking about all kinds of ways that we can take what psychotherapy offers and what the spiritual path is ultimately about freedom right now in the moment and bring them together into some kind of coherent picture. But you don't really offer a coherent picture exactly. No, I think I take my uh, sort of guidance from Buddhism, basically. And my understanding of Buddhism is that it's actually a pragmatic approach to the question of how to relieve unnecessary suffering, or in different language, how to experience freedom. So I don't see uh, my approach or anybody else's as actually describing reality I see any approach as skillful means. And so the skillful means that most interest me is how to invite an immediate experience of open mind. And as soon as we have an idea, a very sophisticated, interesting idea especially, I think it's very easy to somewhat unconsciously assume that that actually is a representation of reality. It's actually capturing things. Uh, 
my preference is to always be presenting my work when I'm with clients and actually just in my life to always return to the immediate experience of not knowing, of open mind, of uh, mystery, of uh, creativity. And I find that for myself that's supported most strongly by working in a way that is difficult for anyone to actually uh, feel resolved about, feel like, oh, that's it, got it, got the idea, that's a good idea. Instead, I would prefer to leave people with a, uh, a type of question that actually doesn't have an answer. I think actually Rilke, uh, in one of his poems, uh, uh, said, be the question, not the answer. And I, I think that's a good guideline in psychotherapy and a lot of other things is to uh, find a variety of skillful means with which we can invite the experience of being the question. Because I think that's a, a, a closer approximation to our fundamental nature of open awareness. Mm-hmm. I don't think an answer is a good approximation, although it's an expression of our basic nature. I don't. I don't think it's helpful in inviting that experience uh, directly. Now, you you mentioned that your interest is in alleviating unnecessary suffering. So in saying that, you're implying that there's necessary suffering and unnecessary suffering. So how do you make that distinction? It seems to me that being sensitive humans, we all are going to have pain in our life, and there's no way around that. Our bodies are going to hurt. Our emotions will get hurt. Society is pretty crazy, and horrible things happen in the world all the time. But unnecessary suffering arises when we try to not have a direct experience of actual legitimate pain. Carl Jung has a quote which I like, which is that all neurosis is a substitute for legitimate suffering. I would say actually a substitute for experiential intensity because I think we also tend to unconsciously dissociate, try to get out of uh, intense joy, creativity, sexual energy, aesthetic appreciation. I think that most of us actually are trying unconsciously to stay out of very intense experiential states. But most of us initially are working on our relationship to pain. So I forget who says it on the New Age circuit, but somebody says, pain is part of life, suffering is optional. So it's sort of, a lot of people are, I think, are considering this idea that it is our attempt to not participate consciously in an immediate embodied way with the reality that human life is very disturbing, it's uh, very intense, and that the result of our avoidance strategies is neurotic or unnecessary suffering. Now let's unpack this a little bit. This quote from Carl Jung is very powerful. Neurosis is a 
substitute for, for legitimate, legitimate suffering. suffering. Yes. Right. Okay. So when when you're referring to neurosis here, what, what do you mean by that? Well, to me, it is the activity of intelligence. First of all, I don't see neurosis as blind conflict. Um, maybe more of a Freudian view, but to me, neurosis is the very intelligent effort to not have to feel pain, not to have to feel that our survival is at risk, not to feel intense grief or panic or fear. But when we try to go around the truth of our experience, we get some immediate relief. It's like if an alcoholic takes a drink to get out of disturbing feelings, they're going to actually get some immediate relief. If we distract ourselves with TV, we don't have to think about our difficult life for the moment. So neurosis works in the short run by providing distraction, a type of anesthesia, an ability to not be aware of our actual experience. The problem, of course, is that because it works, we continue to do it. But usually what happens in my clinical experience is that by the time somebody's maybe in their 30s or 40s, especially, uh, decades of trying to go around the difficult reality of one's life lead to an endless elaboration of avoidance strategies. And often... By that time in one's life, somebody finds that they have this very thick, sort of dissatisfying, complicated state of mind, and they can't understand why, because it's not obviously being caused by any current circumstances. But I see that as the cumulative effect of a lifetime of trying to dissociate, to get away from the truth of our human condition, which is joyful and it's also very disturbing. So from that point of view, neurosis is the activity of intelligence, but in service of a claim that's not really accurate, which is that our difficult feelings are somehow not bearable or not workable. Mm -hmm. Well, it does seem like it's natural that somebody would want to avoid pain. That that seems pretty natural, yeah. I would agree. It's very natural. I think it's hardwired, actually, into our biology from millions of years of evolution. The only question, I think, is do we only want to live a biological life? If my partner says something that hurts my feelings... And if that triggers an historically core vulnerability with, let's say, young survival-level associations, it's likely that I will go into a very primitive fight-or-flight response. And my response then will be basically to get out of that sense of danger. It's unlikely that I will be able to consider what's a skillful response to the immediate situation because I'll be in survival mode. And so a lot of my work actually involves inviting people to stay embodied with this very legitimate 
real panic that goes into our survival level response and see for ourselves does feeling like I'm going to be annihilated mean that I'm actually being harmed? And so this is very difficult work for all of us. It's not easy, and it's counter-instinctual. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to stay in their body as they're feeling that their survival's at risk. And the value of staying in my body while I'm feeling terrible is? The potential value is that I may find that my somewhat automatic biological effort to dissociate, escape, get out of my disturbance, first of all, is not necessary. And if it's not something then that I continue to do automatically, then I have choice. And on a very relative level, choice is an approximation of freedom. It's not a very deep experience, but it's a relative experience of freedom is to have choice. So if I would like to, as the 12-step people say, move from reaction to response, to have a considered choice about how to engage with my life, it may be necessary for me to train myself to not act automatically and consciously to get out of my pain and my fear. Mm-hmm. So now let's see if we can ground this in a, in a real-life example Good. of somebody who comes to you professionally as a therapist, and they're coming with some kind of presenting neurosis of some mm-hmm. kind. And you're able somehow to help them see that this is an avoidant strategy of some kind, that they're pulling away from some feeling of pain or suffering that mm-hmm. they don't want to touch. Now, how would you use both a psychotherapeutic approach and a Buddhist approach in helping this person who comes with some kind of presenting neurosis of some kind? Well, I always try to do my best to respond and speak to somebody in ways that make sense to them. So some people I actually talk to almost solely in a therapeutic type of language. Other people are much more interested or familiar with a Buddhist type of view. But whatever, however I'm talking with the client, I'm always holding, in my experience, the confidence that this person, in fact, could tolerate and handle really intense, disturbing feelings. This is relevant to, again, to people who we would call sort of neurotically organized, at least. I wouldn't work with this approach with somebody who we might call psychotically organized or a very sort of fragile ego structure. Uh, It wouldn't be a kindness to invite more disturbance for that person. But somebody who is adequately defended, has adequate awareness. I feel very confident from a lot of years of doing this that almost all of us can, in fact, stay with exactly the feelings that we've been spending most of our life trying to not feel. So if I, let's say, for example, a very common um, 
presenting problem might be I'm in a relationship, my partner's behavior just makes me crazy. Sounds pretty common. (laughs) Either they're attacking me and they're critical, I feel shamed, or they don't show up, they always have a foot out the door, I can't count on them, things like that. So usually my first question is, are you actually disturbed by your partner or are you disturbed by the feelings that your partner's behavior is triggering in you? So I have the idea that a more precise understanding of that person's disturbance is that they are being forced to feel some feelings that are very difficult and usually turn out to have historically uh, sort of familiar associations for them. It's usually an issue they've had all their life. But as soon as somebody can consider that my actual complaint, my disturbance, is about having to feel feelings, then they've already started to not blame their partner, which paradoxically is a very empowering position because as soon as I say my partner is the cause of my difficult feelings, I'm actually taking a powerless, usually resentful victim position by saying you're the cause of my difficult feelings and now I have to try to change my partner, which I can't do. So then we get into a lot of codependent, sticky, gluey stuff. As soon as a person's willing to consider, oh, actually the issue is my relationship with my difficult feelings, then I can start to explore with that person what it feels like to be aggressive to their own vulnerability by refusing to feel those feelings as opposed to being kind to their own vulnerability, which means to feel those feelings. So I usually present that in a variety of reframes, like when somebody jumps out of their immediate embodied vulnerability into a story, I present that as actually a type of self-abandonment that this difficult feeling is not something that's being done to them. It's something that's been part of their life, will probably be part of their life till they die. But every time they refuse to stay embodied with that vulnerability, they're actually abandoning themselves. And do they really want to do that? Or, to use a more a Buddhist jargon, for some people I might present that as a type of self-aggression. Does it make sense that you are actually being aggressive to your own vulnerability, perhaps in ways that you experienced growing up? So you're perhaps doing to yourself what was done to you. Do you actually want to perpetuate your childhood issues? Was it that great of a childhood? Now, I could see that somebody might say on the surface, I feel like I'm being more kind to myself when I distract myself Mm -hmm. from things that are painful and take myself out to the movies and Mm -hmm. take myself out for my, you know, favorite non-gluten pizza or whatever it might be. And that actually sticking with the terrible feelings of how I feel, that that actually doesn't feel very kind. It feels terrible. Well, one of the ways that I work that's arising from a Buddhist view is the idea the there's an organizing principle called view, practice, action. 
with the idea that practice is one of the most reliable vehicles of change. But most of the practices that have the potential for transformative change, unfortunately or not, tend to be counter-instinctual, meaning we don't want to do them. Sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) So I talk with people a lot. Unlike some therapists, I talk with people a lot, especially initially, about the view about why might it be to your benefit to do something so stupid as to invite exactly the feelings you've spent most of your life trying not to feel. And if somebody doesn't understand why, it might be to their personal selfish benefit to do that, then I don't think they're likely to actually do this type of work. It's not going to be sustainable. So I talk with people a fair amount about the difference between behavior and feelings and be and feelings and thoughts so that we can understand that just because we feel a certain way, it may not be the best guideline for our health, our growth, being skillful, being kind to ourselves and others. So often I'll suggest that people examine their life and consider that any arena in which they actually are competent and successful in, they probably already have disciplined themselves to not let their feelings run their behavior in certain very important ways. Mm -hmm. If you have a job and you get up in the morning and you don't want to get out of bed, you discipline yourself to go to work anyway if you want to keep your job. If you're a parent, you don't whack your kids just because you feel so frustrated. So in a similar way, if we want to actually challenge habitual patterns in a very fast, powerful way, a very difficult but fast path, in my experience, is to discipline ourselves to come back into our disturbance over and over and over and over and over again, knowing that we're never going to want to do that. Mm -hmm. But to discriminate between the fact that it feels bad and the possibility that that may not be synonymous with not being healthy. So obviously healthy is not synonymous with positive feelings. Mm -hmm. If I get a flu shot, I'm not going to like getting a flu shot. Right. I think that that maybe is a misconception that a lot of people have. They think that being healthy is synonymous with only feeling good all the time. Right. And I think that happens both in our popular culture where we're basically always sort of encouraged to be happy and feel good and avoid things that don't feel good. And even in most people's, in my experience, in most people's spiritual path work, people seem to have this uh, unexamined idea that waking up is supposed to feel good. It's not. (laughs) Well, if waking up actually involves a radical disidentification with this endless display of thoughts, feelings, sensations, and actually a capacity for one's psychic center of gravity to rest in open awareness, then the assertion, which I think is accurate, is that the nature of open awareness is without bias. Awareness does not have a preference for positive feelings or negative feelings. And so as long as we are equating waking up with feeling good, whether it's bliss or confidence or anything, 
we're actually uh, missing the point, in my opinion. Okay, so a client comes to you and you educate them about this idea that it's counter-instinctual to stay with our difficult feelings, but there's a lot of value in it. And they say, okay, you know, I'm I'm ready for the discipline. I, I buy into this. Now they are with their difficult feelings. H- how do you help them in that process? What are, what are they actually doing? They, they sit with their, they feel nauseated and they sit feeling nauseated for a couple hours or how does it go? Good question. Um, my view is that touching in on difficult feelings frequently for short periods of time is usually a lot more useful than trying to hang in there and resolve something. So my encouragement usually is to invite somebody, especially to stay at the sensation level of their experience, because I have found for myself and I think others that it's very hard to find a problem at the sensation level of one's experience. It's very easy to find a problem at the interpretive level. And our emotions are still strongly interpretive. So my bias is to encourage somebody to experiment with staying at the level of my stomach is tight, my throat's constricted, I feel like some tears are there, my heart is heavy, I feel numb. And then I almost always will ask them to check it out for themselves. Is it harming you? to stay embodied with this intensity in your body just at the sensation level. Is it killing you? Are you becoming dysfunctional? Do you think it's giving you cancer? It's an an actual inquiry. I'm not trying to feed them the right answer because if that person actually investigates and finds that their very worst fear, like let's say abandonment or something, that when they stay at the sensation level, they're not going to find a sensation of abandonment, first of all. There's no such sensation. They might find a clenched sort of nauseous feeling in their gut. But if they find out, well, so what? I hate it. It's disturbing. But if I really pay attention... I actually can't find any harm, then incrementally they may start to develop the confidence that they can actually welcome the feeling of abandonment into their life without it causing any harm. Now, what if somebody stays with a physical sensation that they find quite difficult and you know they're, they're with it and they're with it and they're like, this actually, no, it's not killing me, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's very yucky. It's very, very yucky. Yucky, mm. breathing in, yucky, mm. breathing out, yucky. In, in, yucky, yucky, yucky. I'd probably say, great, we're, you're on the track, probably. That's probably accurate. And then the question is, first of all, is there any harm in that yucky? And if not, then the next question is, do you think that this feeling that feels so difficult has been with you all your life? Do you think it's likely it will be with you for the foreseeable future? And that's where a Western-style therapeutic investigation is often very helpful. 
with its focus on family of origin experience, developmental views, because almost always, in my experience, when somebody starts to get in touch with their core vulnerabilities, they're going to find a type of familiar recognition. Yes, gosh, I've really felt this way all my life. I felt unacknowledged, I felt shamed, I felt controlled. Yeah, I really, really hate this feeling, and yeah, I, I really, yeah, it's familiar. So then the question is, if you're stuck with this feeling, maybe the only choice you have is not whether you have it in your life or not, but how you relate to it. And from a Buddhist point of view, you can relate to your experience with fundamental aggression, meaning, uh-uh, don't want to feel it, try to get rid of it, try not to feel it, or with fundamental kindness. Say, yes, I don't like it, but what can I say? I've investigated this feeling, and I'm pretty convinced that it's part of my life. So, at that point, the question of whether it's yucky or not becomes secondary, and the real question is, how do I relate to the truth of who I find myself to be? Which, mm -hmm. unfortunately, usually includes a lot of very painful, anxiety-producing experiences. Mm -hmm. now, now, it's interesting that you're bringing up this term anxiety-producing experiences because in the program, Already Free, you, you say many challenging and I would say disturbing things. <laughs> and one of them is that you've found that it's actually important in this process of working with our unnecessary suffering to commit ourselves to the experience of anxiety. I thought this was very interesting. So I'm wondering if you can... T what, you, what do you mean by that? We commit ourselves to the experience of anxiety. In my life and in my work with clients, I don't think I've yet found anybody who has a life free of anxiety. Anxiety comes and goes, but everybody I've talked with pretty much has found that they, it's hard to even recall a day in which they haven't felt some experience of anxiety it might be very small, but about our health, our kids, money, whatever. So from a Western therapy point of view, anxiety is usually understood as an indication that deeper levels of vulnerability are being forced into our awareness. And so as long as we are perpetuating our young developmental organization of stabilized repression, of being divided against aspects of ourself that were very difficult growing up, basic Western view, there is going to be a type of chronic anxiety because there's a part of us that we're claiming is unworkable, unbearable, dangerous, shameful, something. So if that anxiety is going to be there, again, we only really have a choice do I commit to the truth of my experience or do I have that same experience and invest a lot of energy in denial and avoidance, which has the consequences we were talking about before with neurosis of generating unnecessary suffering and confusion because it's not dealing with the truth. Mm -hmm. From a Buddhist point of view, I see anxiety as an accurate perception of the fundamentally open nature of our own minds and of our lives, but from the reference point of what we call egoic process, that part of us that wants 
control, safety, happiness, comfort, all of those things, when that aspect of who we are is forced into a recognition that there's absolutely no basis for that fantasy in our life as some permanent state of happiness and so forth, that we basically freak out. That aspect of ourself freaks out, and that is experienced as anxiety. So from that point of view, we could look at any of our life circumstances that we feel anxious about. I'm going to the doctor. Can I pay my bill? My partner hasn't called and they're late coming home. And we could consider that in each of those situations, we're actually being forced into a recognition that we don't know. Any, anything could actually be happening. I could have undiagnosed cancer. My car, partner could be harmed. But most of us spend an incredible amount of energy trying to stay out of the direct recognition of openness. When we are forced into a recognition of openness, as long as we have egoic process that we're identified with, we will experience that as anxiety. So from that point of view, we can actually experience uh, understand anxiety as an approximation of an open state of mind. Right. So this is very interesting to me. Okay. Very, very interesting. And I think that I've seen anxiety get a bad rap from a couple of different directions. Sure. So one direction is just if you're if you're feeling anxious, that means you should, you know, either take a pill or say your mantra or do your affirmations or do something that it's not, you know, very spiritual, quote unquote, to be feeling anxious. Mm. And then the other approach would be from people who I've heard have some sense that they've like arrived to some state of big open being and they never feel anxious mm. anymore. And I'm often suspect mm. about that. Like you never feel anxious about anything. Like that mm. seems a little uh, fishy mm. to me. And now here you're talking about anxiety as actually uh, potentially a harbinger of an open way of being that's trying to breakthrough. Yes, and I obviously couldn't say that it's not valid if somebody reports that they're living without anxiety, but my opinion is that as long as we are maintaining some type of egoic process, we are going to experience anxiety because our basic nature is open. Life is open. An e egoic response to open mind is anxiety, as I see it. If somebody actually dissolves egoic process, or let's say at least their identification with that, I think in fact they dissolve unnecessary or chronic anxiety. And then they might feel more just biological type of anxiety. Mm -hmm. They're walking in the woods and they hear a noise in the bushes and they feel anxious. But that's not what's addressed in therapy. Mm -hmm. That's just normal appropriate anxiety. It's a mm -hmm. type of getting alert. Mm -hmm. So I think I would agree with you that um, most of us dedicate a lot of our energy trying to not feel anxious. And if we feel anxious, we think it's evidence of a problem that we then try to solve. And then when we don't feel anxious, we think the problem is maybe solved. But that's maybe not the greatest indication of wakefulness. So I think, again, in a way that's very 
difficult and counterinstinctual that we might commit to cultivating a tolerance of anxiety. We're never going to like it, but tolerating anxiety as understanding it as an approximation of open mind. And if we want to actually invite more identification with our fundamental nature of open mind, I don't think it's possible to go around anxiety. Now, you're saying that anxiety could be considered an approximation of open mind because when I'm feeling anxious, I don't know how things are going to go. So in that sense, there's a, a sort of lack of certitude on my part, and that's why it's an approximation of open mind? Well, um, it's a little difficult to be really precise with, but it's actually something that's happening in the present moment. It's not about a, really a lack of cer certitude, I think, as much as the response of a part of who we are as humans, that part that wants security and certainty and to have things resolved, faced with the undeniable immediate experience of vast open mind. And it's an approximation of open mind because it's a direct perception of open mind, but through the filter of egoic process, as I see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. You make another very interesting comment. Some of these comments have really stayed with me oh. after mm -hmm. listening to the program, Bruce. Disembodiment is a requirement of neurosis. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you can explain that in light of the conversation we're already having. I think it, it fits in. Well, to return to the idea of neurosis as the intelligent, but let's say inaccurate effort to have a life without vulnerability. The fundamental mechanism of neurosis, in my experience, is dissociation, meaning that we are actually experiencing something, but uh, we, in a fraction of a second, leave our embodied experience and go into our thoughts, a distraction, some type of unconsciousness, whatever. There's a lot of styles of dissociation, but it seems to me pretty straightforward that if I stay embodied, I have to experience my experience. If I'm feeling this sort of nauseous panic in my gut and am consciously participative in my embodied experience, it's sort of hard to pretend that I'm not experiencing it. So to me, the uh, fundamental requirement of neurosis is actually dissociation is disembodiment. As soon as we bring our attention out of our embodied vulnerability, out of our immediate experience, then we're able to start creating a state of mind that serves this basically distractive, avoidant uh, function. So I think it's very interesting to consider that if this is accurate at all, that a very generic way to start to dissolve neurotic process is the practice of re-embodiment. And it's possible that we don't actually have to go back and go through all of the varieties of neurosis. Maybe we don't have to rework all of our abandonment issues or our control issues from childhood. Perhaps the more powerful direct path could be that we return into immediate embodied, open-hearted, 
commitment to whatever the truth of our experience is. And if staying embodied makes it very difficult to pretend that we're not feeling what we are, then neurosis actually starts to get dissolved or dismantled in a very generic way then. So I happen to have the idea that it's a very good practice for all of us, if it makes sense, to return to immediate embodied experience, especially sensation-level experience, anytime it occurs to us, not even in response to a problem, not even to try to work something through. Mm-hmm. Now, in the program, you say something pretty radical, which is, what if there actually wasn't a problem? What would it mean to live our life moment to moment as if we were completely unproblematic, our lives were unproblematic. Can, can you explain that and how you work with that? Because obviously people are coming to you as a therapist because they believe they have problems. That's why you go to a therapist. Right. Then your therapist says to you, you know, what if you didn't have a problem? I mean, I think I might, I might shoot the person at that point. Yes, well, some, some people don't come back a second time. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I try to be very clear that not having a problem does not mean not being disturbed, not having pain. Obviously, to me, as sensitive humans, we're all going to feel very a very rich, unending display of experience that some of it's beautiful, some of it's horrible, some of it is pleasurable, some of it is boring, but that the sense of problem, I think, arises when we refuse to experience something fully. So if I, let's say, have a feeling, to use, let's say, that abandonment feeling again, if my partner has walked out of the room when I'm talking and I have this feeling triggered, if I refuse to just feel how deeply hurt and vulnerable and powerless and angry I feel, then I'm basically claiming that those feelings are a problem. If I let myself go deeply into that vulnerable experience, even though I do not want to, it's counter-instinctual, then I find out for myself, is it workable to have this experience? I don't like it, but is it workable? If I go into the experience, I can go through the experience. If I try to go around the experience, paradoxically, I generate a sense of solid problem. Mm-hmm. So one thing I sometimes say to clients is an example is just the kid with the monster in the closet. The child believes that he or she is avoiding the closet because the monster is there. And it doesn't occur to them that the monster is there because they're avoiding the closet. Mm-hmm. If the child wants to free themselves of this f- basically phobic organization in their life, unfortunately, they have to find a way to go and open the door and take the risk that they're going to be torn to shreds. It's not a fun thing to do. But once they open the door and hopefully find there's no monster there, then there's no problem there. 
And so the experience of problem actually comes from a refusal to stay embodied with, committed to, open-hearted to the truth of our human experience. Right. Now, you know, listening to you in this conversation, we keep kind of coming back to this same antidote, if you will, or to this same direction that you're Mm -hmm. pointing people, which is to come into their embodied experience, no matter how difficult or disturbing it might be, Mm -hmm. and be willing to be with it. Yes. And, you know, in and of itself, that doesn't sound, the words don't sound that hard or that impossible to follow. And yet, what we see in ourselves and around us is uh, a world filled with people who are avoiding Mm -hmm. their embodied immediate experience, ourselves, myself included. I'll speak for myself. So so, what is so terribly hard about this? It, It doesn't sound that hard as you're describing it. Well, obviously, simple is not synonymous with easy. So it's not complicated, but it's not easy. It's very difficult, actually. I think it's a complex question. Obviously, as we talked about before, we have millions of years of biology that program us to do anything to get out of what feels like a threat to our survival. We wouldn't be here if our ancestors weren't sort of more paranoid than optimistic, probably. So just working at the biological level is very difficult. But on top of that, most of us have very complicated emotional histories where feeling certain feelings is very powerfully associated with horrible experiences growing up. So there's the immediate experience, let's say, of abandonment, but perhaps that's a core vulnerability for me because maybe as a child my parents were so self-absorbed or busy or something that I'd be left at home for hours at a time when I was four or seven and was in a state of just panic all the time. Another difficulty, of course, is that we're not going to get much support for this. Almost anybody, when we talk to them and we're disturbed, almost always is going to try to help us feel less disturbed. They're going to try to reassure us or tell us that we're a great person or say the other person is just, they're they're the problems, you're fine, let's solve the problem. And so there's a lot of actually um, very sort of unconscious shame and isolation involved with uh, an acknowledgement of how vulnerable and difficult our emotional lives are. So it's it's very difficult, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what you're saying is that there's not a lot of support when somebody says, how are you doing? And you say, you know, I'm I'm dealing with this nausea that keeps getting triggered, blah, blah, blah. They want to give you a pill or, or talk you out of it or something. Of course, if, if what we're talking about is not about some individual who's all dysfunctional, but actually we're talking about the basic human condition for all of us, then when you say, gosh, I have this horrible feeling, I feel my heart's just broken, well, then through a process of resonance, I immediately am going to feel 
those same feelings. Yeah. And if I'm not committed to having a kind relationship with my pain, I definitely don't want to hear about your pain. Yeah. If I'm trying to get rid of my pain, I'll try to get rid of your pain. Yes. And so a lot of, especially work with couples, uh, turns out to be pretty straightforward in that if we can be kind to the pain that our partners are guaranteed to provoke in us, then potentially we can be kind to that person who's triggering those feelings. If we are aggressive to our vulnerability, we will be aggressive to the person who's triggering that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Now, in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about how there's this view of Western psychotherapy that you call the developmental view, and then the view of Buddhism and spiritual work, the fruitional mm-hmm. view. And I'm curious if you were to reflect on the conversation we've been having, how you would put the various techniques and ways that you work in each category, because I, I know that your approach is to alternate between a developmental perspective and a fruitional perspective. So how, how have, is that going on even in just what we've been talking about here? Well, again, I try to tailor it to that person's language and so forth, but I'll, I'll often say, well, from a Western point of view, your efforts to not feel that difficult feeling are basically understood to be serving a protective function which is very valid. From a Buddhist point of view, we can actually understand it as entertainment, that your fantasy that you're a divided person basically continues your state of self-absorption and supports your identity drama. And I just leave it at that. I don't suggest that one is the correct way of doing it, because again, my hope is to invite a type of unresolvable dialogue within that person so that a type of question can be invited rather than an answer. Mm -hmm. But in a more general way, I would say that Western therapy basically is about improving one's experience and our sense of self, which I think is very intelligent, better to tell ourselves a good story about who we are and about life than a bad story. But my personal sort of intention that I bring to all of my work is to continually find a way to invite that person to gradually relax their self-aggression, relax their fantasy that they are a problematic person relax the effortful maintenance of feeling divided against themselves. And from a Buddhist point of view, the deeper we go into immediate experience, actually the less evidence of problem we find. Which is one of the reasons I focus on sensation, that at the thought level, it's very easy to come up with a lot of ideas about why I'm a problem, my relationship is a problem, At the sensation level, it's very hard to find problem. We can find 
intensity but not a problem. As we keep going down even deeper into, let's say, aliveness or energy, at some point we start to get the in intuition there's no essential nature here. There's no sense of conflict. And solidity is basically perpetuated by a sense of conflict. So the larger intention I have is to try my best to invite a relaxation of the self-absorption that comes from pretending that we are a problem so that we might, it's not a guarantee, but that we might be more likely to actually start asking the more interesting question, well, what is aware of all of this? What's the nature of awareness? Because that's when the potential for actual liberation or freedom arises. Freedom, in my opinion, is never going to arise from self-improvement. Mm -hmm. Improved quality of life will arise, but not freedom. Freedom comes from a shift in one's experiencing where we actually, it's not completely accurate, but we actually are experience being uh, our basic nature of open awareness. But it's, it's difficult, it's not impossible, it's, but it's difficult to relax our attention enough to risk being open awareness as long as we're claiming that we are a problematic person and that we have all of these cosmically significant issues at risk and at stake all the time. It, it guarantees self-absorption, actually. So my larger intention is to invite a relaxation into immediacy, a relaxation of the claim that there is a problem, so that somebody might be curious about, well, what is aware? Not who, but what is aware? Now, how does the person who's working with their sensations, and from this level of being with sensations, they can start to feel this energy or aliveness underneath. How, how do they get, though, to this question of who is aware? Or what is aware. Or what is aware. Uh, I think it's sort of a mystery. I haven't found any way to engineer that. So the best that I can offer usually is to introduce that idea, because it's an idea for most of us, first of all, that there's always, already, our fundamental nature of open awareness. It's not something to be created. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's already present. And then suggest that intention is very central to that investigation. That intention is a very powerful organizing principle, I think. So if somebody starts to actually feel an intuitive draw toward that question about what is my fundamental nature, what is, what is so basic that I'm never going to find anything more basic than that, what is always present, I mean, Bruce is saying this, I read it in a book or something, but what is that actually? If we can start to align our behavior, our thinking, our emotional processing with that intention, I think that's probably about the most effective thing most of us can do. And we just keep it simple. 
You know, I mean, I think a lot of spiritual practices are helpful, but I think most of them are actually, for most of us anyway, postponing the direct realization of our basic nature. So, you know, I did prostrations as a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and everything. That's fine. But why not just say, well, investigate my basic nature right this moment, if it's true that it's present? Why go through all these other things? Well, the reason, of course, is that when we make the effort to rest in our basic nature of open awareness, it's not something that we know how to make happen. So then there's a lot of path practices that are very helpful. Buddhist tradition has many practices, but psychotherapy also has very powerful practices if used in that way to, again, dissolve the fantasy of being a problem. And the more we can dissolve our self-absorption, the more organically, spontaneously, we might start having more and more moments of recognizing what's already present. But, as is said, that nature of open awareness has no qualities. It can't be gotten a hold of with senses or emotions or thoughts. So, it's very frustrating from sort of our usual approach of trying to understand and get a hold of. Now, the title of the program with Sounds True that you've published, Already Free, a meeting between Buddhism and psychotherapy on the path of liberation, it it seems that in that title, Already Free, you're positing the perspective of Buddhism that we're already free versus the perspective of psychotherapy, which is saying we have all of this work to do to mm-hmm. dissolve these obstacles. Mm-hmm. So is there a bias in the titling of the program? Uh, definitely. <laughs> yes, my my work as a therapist is definitely coming from my Buddhist training and practice and understanding. So I'm hoping in this program to introduce the practices of psychotherapy from a fruitional point of view so that we can consider that maybe these two approaches are not inherently incompatible, which some people feel. I don't don't share that idea. But I think that psychotherapy is actually much more powerful when practiced from the attitude that these are sort of illusory problems that we're trying to untangle. They have no essential nature. And with that comes a very deep confidence and maybe a sense of humor and I think definitely a type of compassion when we recognize that most of us are really suffering unnecessarily. I can imagine a therapist listening who says, so you're saying that the person who comes to me who was sexually abused as a child or whatever and is presenting these issues, that I'm going to hold a perspective that these are illusory problems? Uh, We have to be kind to how we talk with people. And if somebody is identified with being a sexual abuse survivor, 
I have to judge how invested they are in that identity. It would be very unkind to say, oh, that was an illusion that you were sexually abused. That, that happened. That, that was horrible. But what many of us do, of course, is unconsciously, now we are actually identifying ourselves, in this case, as a sexual abuse victim or survivor. And that's not actually to that person's benefit, perhaps. Because they're identifying themselves in this very horrible way about something that happened 20 or 30 years ago. So some people, as a path issue, really do need to go through those stages. They need to go from feeling like a victim to feeling like a survivor, to use that language. And it would be unkind to say, oh, you know, that's sort of an unnecessary problem you're creating. We have to approach these things developmentally in stages. But at a certain point in some people's lives, not everyone, but in some people's lives, they might be willing to investigate, for example, if I stay in my immediate experience, where is the identity of being a sexual abuse survivor? And is it serving me to perpetuate that claim? As, that, as far as that's who I am, that's my essential nature. Isn't that a really horrible identity to have? But to give up the identity, that person has to then take complete responsibility for their immediate feelings, which often are very difficult, of course, especially as will be provoked in an intimate relationship. I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> now, Bruce, I just want to ask a, a final question here, which is this way that you're presenting psychotherapy and the teachings of Tibetan Buddhism that you've studied and practiced, I, I think is uh, very groundbreaking mm. and has a lot of unique language in it, and you're drawing from your clinical experience, which I, I really appreciate. W what do you wish for people who might listen to this series that they'll gain from the approach that you're laying out? Well, if I had to be really basic, I, I guess I would hope that people would consider the view that there are some very real practical reasons why it makes sense to be so kind to ourselves that we're willing to stay embodied in our very difficult, vulnerable experience rather than somewhat unconsciously abandon ourselves in the name of immediate relief. And so my hope, I think, would be to just introduce the idea, first of all, that paradoxically it may be an act of kindness, first of all for ourselves, and then, of course, by extension to others, to not take in an unexamined way, our, our very pervasive cultural idea that a good life is one without pain, without anxiety, without disturbance. And in fact, the ground, the basis of compassion with ourselves and others is to stay embodied and present with the difficulty of being human. 
that's how we actually keep our hearts open, not by trying to transcend our difficult feelings. So I guess my hope would just be in a variety of ways to encourage all of us to be as kind as possible to the truth of our human experience. I've been speaking with Bruce Tift. He's created a new seven-part learning series with Sounds True called Already Free, Buddhism Meets Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation, a program that goes into quite a bit of detail on the developmental approach, the fruitional approach, how we work with anxiety, the challenge of embodiment, and then a whole section on working with relationships. Very interesting series and one that I derived quite a bit of benefit from producing and working on with Bruce. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.